The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com disclosures. Everybody give it up again for Sarah Wang here from uh, Introducing <laughs> Horowitz. Sarah and I had a, a stated goal going into this, which is uh, we want to make this conversation completely identical to the conversation that we would just have sitting backstage, uh, whether you were here or not, uh, as we dig into just about everything in the realm of the partnerships universe, uh, the market, and beyond. There's obviously a, a lot of uh, shifts going on in the market at large, but at the same time, these really exciting things in the partnerships universe that seem to kind of uh, amount to maybe a shift of their own that, that kind of counterbalances that. And just want to generally understand, like, you know, how, how real is that? Uh, and how real do you think, you know, what we're seeing in real portfolio companies out there in the market is a lot of this growth through partnerships really, really becoming? You know, I think a lot of what you said was spot on. And, you know, I'll, I'll bring a different perspective, which is that of um, fundraising. And I've been an investor for, for over a decade, seen different cycles. Um, and, uh, you know, I think full caveat, don't have a crystal ball in what is going on. Um, clearly, clearly something is going on. Um, and, you know, I think uh, what's very interesting in the fundraising market that has started to turn is that not only are valuations coming down, rounds have started to not get done. Um, and what, what that means um, is that being more efficient has started to come back in vogue. Um, you know, I think for a very long time, all valuations were completely correlated with growth. Um, and now if you run the math on the public markets, if you look at even private rounds, growth plus efficiency, um, your margin, your profitability, however you want to measure that, um, is the biggest driver of what your company is actually valued at. Um, and you know, what does that mean for companies? Um, I think there's a round of belt tightening coming on, coming along. And you know, just to translate this further, what does this mean for the people in this room, your teams. Honestly, um, partnerships are more important than ever, um, and specifically because you're bringing in pipeline, you're shortening sales cycles, and you're increasing conversion rates. Um, and that's a very good thing, because that is need to have, not nice to have, especially in this environment. I would say in an environment where fundraising is you know, virtually free, the market is flowing, um, it's almost more nice to have than need to have. Um, the flip side is that if you're not doing that, um, you know, I think there is some danger. One example that came up recently, I was looking at two companies, um, you know, I won't name names, but, but this company, as you know, round numbers, 100 million of ARR, um, their plan is to go to 200, and um, you know, I'm looking at another company where they're at 5 million of ARR, their plan is to go to 15 million. One has 50% partner-generated pipeline, and the other has 100% sales generated pipeline, um, the, the smaller one. And you know, as an investment team, we're more willing to bet that the 100 goes to 200 because of how consistent their partner generated pipeline has got. That team could literally go to sleep for a year and come back and they'd be at 200 million of ARR. We feel very confident about that. The sales generated pipeline, we've discounted that internally from five to 10 million of ARR, right? So like cut it in half essentially. Um, and so that's just a real life example of how investors and board members are thinking about it. Uh, you know, a, a lot of what you're saying about the importance of partnerships, 
Would it have been true five years ago? Would it have been true 10 years ago? And if not, why not? Uh, you know, honestly, five years ago, no. Um, and even when my partner Jennifer and I, who's in the audience, um, were, were doing our diligence, we talked to some old school sales folks who told us partnerships is where non-revenue things go to die. Um, and that was the misconception for a very long time. And, you know, to be fair, there probably were some not well-run partnerships teams where the ROI was low back in the day. Um, but I think what's changed is you know, a couple things. Um, one, there's just been this Cambrian explosion of SaaS applications, and it doesn't make sense for everyone to spin up a direct sales team and go heavy at this um, you know, expensive direct effort where um, the, best in, the shift to best in class means that you're probably not going to get into a customer and upsell a monolithic suite the way you used to do if you were SAP or Oracle. That's just not how customers want to buy software these days. That's not how, um, that's not how they optimize their own internal ROI. And so um, this ecosystem play that you know, Bob mentioned in his opening remarks um, is, a, is a way of life. Uh, and you know, I think the ecosystem of startups and um, established companies is just so so much richer than it was before. Customers see that, and you know, if you're not selling alongside the software that they also want to be using, you're at a real disadvantage. Um, you know, and I, I think this um, this concept actually plays out in you start to see stacks. I don't know if there are any data companies, any anyone who touches the data ecosystem in the audience, um, but you hear about the modern data stack. What does that look like? And Honestly, we talk to stakeholders, it starts to converge. Everyone is saying, hey, my modern data stack has Snowflake, it has Fivetran, it has DBT, it has you know, XYZ in it. And if you're not named in that, you actually start to fall behind. Um, the smart ones, including some of the companies in that, you know, the list that I just mentioned, are selling together. Um, and that's a really big change in the environment. Yeah, I uh, may go slightly off book here because it just made me think of a really interesting nuance that we try to we try to handle in our content, but is uh, always a little challenging, which is this difference between technology partnerships and channel partnerships. And I think one trend that has been really interesting for us is kind of this convergence of these two categories because at the end of the day, they both start to be all about the revenue storytelling. Whether you started on the product side and building a tech integration or you started on the services side and bringing uh, kind of the last mile of service delivery, what ends up happening really is uh, this deal acceleration, this increase in ACV, et cetera. When you talk about half of the pipeline is from partners, is that tech partners? Is it service partners? Is it a combination of the two? And do VCs in the boardroom think about those things differently, or are they kind of converging into one, one stack? Yeah, I would say the most powerful programs usually combine the two. Um, and it's, it's great that you bring that up. I mean, a quintessential, and by the way, some of you may partner with this company, so you can keep me honest, but one of the quintessential examples of a successful tech company channel partnership is UiPath, a company called UiPath, which um, works in the um, process automation space. And um, you know, I, the, the factoid that people like to share is that for every dollar that UiPath would make, UiPath would generate its partner $4. Um, so you can imagine that its partners were pretty darn motivated to sell UiPath to their customers. Um, and Accenture has a lot of customers, right? And um, you know, it, this mutually beneficial relationship very much exists in that world. Um, and I think uh, you know, those who take advantage of it 
like a UiPath um, have really benefited from, uh, from digging into this gigantic customer base that they bring. Um, and then the second piece, I mentioned diversity. Um, you know, having all of your eggs in one basket is, is never a good thing. I can tell you from an investor, um, when I look at a partner-generated pipeline, the first thing I ask is, it, is it all being generated by one partner? Um, the reason I had so much conviction in um, that example that I mentioned to you of going from 100 to 200 was that this company had 50 partners that were all generating no more than 5% of revenue each. So it was, um, it was a, you know, I think, a sign to me of predictability. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, so you talked a little bit about the, the old stigma of partnerships, that kind of journeyman sales person who says, you know, partnerships is a parking lot or partnerships is kind of <laughs> where, uh, you know, in the good old days of partnerships, if you had a co-founder and didn't quite know what to do with them and the business had outgrown <laughs> them, you just make, make them head of partnerships, right? It's like there, there is a little bit of that that like, uh, and what I think has been so amazing is just the rise of the partnership professional uh, and how much credibility and importance has been placed on that discipline and the expertise that can be built up around a person that truly is a partnership leader in, in the purest sense of the word. And I wonder if you can talk about that a little bit, like the, the discipline of partnerships, the importance of that partnership's hire. And when this comes up in the boardroom, you know, what are the things that uh, from an org chart perspective are part of the conversation? Yeah, absolutely. Lots to unpack there. Um, maybe I'll start with the uh, first question. Um, one of the things that I've been very fascinated by is just a student of, of go-to-market and, and actually a prior investor in a company called Zoom Info. I don't know if you guys have, have heard of that um, uh, sales and marketing intelligence tool. Um, but one of the things that when we first invested in Zoom Info back in 2014, when I was with another firm, that we really rode the wave of was the rise of the SDR. Right? Mm -hmm. This is old news. It's you know decade plus long trend. Big change at the time, back in 2014, as you can imagine, people were like, what are SDRs? Um, they're useless, et cetera. Um, uh, but at the time, they were growing 3x the, the rate of field sales. Now, you know, I haven't met a company without a team of SDRs. Um, it's, it's pretty commonplace. What's been really interesting, uh, again, as a student of go-to-market evolution, is the rise of the PDR, mm -hmm. right? You know, I think, Bob, one of the things you talked about on this stage uh, just earlier was that partnerships is about collaboration. It's not about this zero sum game, but like, I'm going to have to like, you know, pull this lead out of you and like, you'll, and then I'll, I'll try to resist giving you anything, right? It's actually the more generous you are, the more you get, right? That is the ethos of partnerships that I think is very different than sales um, and, and very additive to sales. One of the neat things that we've seen is that, hey, how do you actually implement and professionalize this? Um, well, you know, having PDRs or people who are really dedicated to helping partners and in turn having them help you has really be, started to become a trend in our portfolio, outside of our portfolio. More generally in the boardroom, partnerships is the number one hire that we hear our early companies make. And for the companies that have really nailed it, our best performing companies are relying very heavily on partnerships. Um, you know, I think I threw out there uh, a company that where 50% of their pipeline was being generated by partnerships. Um, one of my best friends is a VP of enterprise sales. Um, she told me that she joined her current company because she heard that partnerships were a big part of generating pipeline. And you know, who wants to fight the uphill sales-led battle of, of you know, 100% pipeline generation? Um, so it's. It's the number one uh, hire that we hear for our Series B and earlier companies. Mm -hmm. um, when it works, it's very much tied to results. Um, and that's sort of the, next, the new era of partnerships that we're seeing. Yeah, and that's, that's so fascinating. In fact, when we started Crossbeam, we used to say, 
you know, our target market is anybody that has the word partnerships in somebody's title somewhere. And usually that's companies with, you know, 200 plus employees or 300 plus employees. Right. We're starting to see partnership hires get made employee five, employee 10. Uh, and I wonder if you can unpack that a little bit and like, what, what do you think is happening? What do you think is different? Maybe it's some of the things we've already touched on, but this seems like maybe part of kind of Cambrian explosion of uh, SaaS apps and just the relevance of this earlier on in the product market fit journey for these companies. Yeah, uh, we now have this new wave of companies that were startups but are now very successful. So like a Snowflake or a Shopify. Um, and for them, their next layer of growth is actually monetizing their existing customer base. Um, they're all creating marketplaces. You probably have seen them or part of them. Um, that's not an accident or experiment. They're looking for their next avenue of growth. And um, for them, there's sort of this bigger willingness to partner with newer companies that um, you know, come back and you know, help their bottom line, obviously, but also enrich in that ecosystem that they're creating. Um, and then the second piece does come back to this point about selling in a stack and mm. being one of the default names that people go to because you know every buyer gets kind of lazy right you don't want to do a full rfp of everything right you kind of just want to ask your friends hey what are you using and if you start to hear eight out of your ten friends say the exact same names in their stack and you have respect for them they're the leaders in their space you're like hey can't go wrong buying the new IBM, which is a stack of like the top 10 best software tools in whatever space you're in. Mm -hmm. So um, I think those two combined have led to this migration much earlier. And to your point, I do see partnerships being the fifth hire, the 10th hire, the 20th hire. Um, and from again, from an investor and boardroom perspective, we're highly encouraging of that. Because if you can get, in, get your name in the door early, get the right uh, integrations in place, right? It's not just a sales and marketing story, it's also a product story. Um, get the right partners to be focused on you, you're actually accelerating way past your competitors mm -hmm. much earlier on and sort of creating the self-fulfilling prophecy around yourself. Yeah, that's incredible. I often uh, quote this interview that uh, uh, Mark Andreessen was in where there's kind of this, this glib quote that is, there's only two ways to make money in software, bundling and unbundling. <laughs> uh, and you, know, you talk about things like the, the modern data stack, and it's a perfect example of this massive unbundling cycle where what used to be this one product has now been kind of deconstructed into an entire ecosystem of these interconnected best-in-class tools. It's almost like we're in the midst of the great unbundling with the, uh, the emergence of the API economy and the maturity of it. It seems like almost every stack has been exploded out into... Uh, these many, many, many best-in-class kind of slices of the pie, are we ever at risk of rebundling, I guess? And do you ever see that out in the markets? And, uh, you know, when you think about this awesome connective tissue that we're all responsible for building at this conference, um, you know, are there reasons to believe that's got staying power and that that's actually kind of the new way? Uh, or are we part of just kind of a really interesting piece of a, of a sine wave that is history repeating itself? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and um, you know I'll I try to spring things we didn't plan yeah, for on you, on stage. Yeah, yeah, and I'll fully admit. I mean, who who knows? Um, but I think there are a couple indicators that we are in something that has staying power. Um, and you know what's exciting? I'll I'll actually keep going back to the e-commerce example because uh, you know I, I actually talked to one buyer recently. Um, I was like, hey, what's your stack? And he named twenty things, literally twenty items, um, and. You know, on the one hand, I was like, hey, that's a lot of things. Like, do you want to consolidate? And he told me, he was like, well, you know, I was doing everything on Salesforce before. Sorry, I hope there are no Salesforce people here. But he said, you know, we were all on uh, Salesforce Commerce Cloud before this. And 
you know, it just, in this market, we need customization, we need flexibility. And without that, we're actually losing revenue and falling behind our competitors. Um, the next gen and the new wave of, of tooling out there is the only way he was able to get that for his company. And in this API economy where integrations are more seamless than ever, there's no more trade-off for, for companies to say like, hey, actually we should just go for this monolithic solution, sacrifice quality because, hey, at least all of my systems talk to each other. Right, like we're just seeing less of that because the trade-off is is um, not there anymore. Yeah, and user experience ends up playing a really big role too. I think for every employee that we have of Crossbeam, we, there are two or three SaaS apps, right? Like the, the number of SaaS apps we use is a multiple of the number of employees we have, but the number that we actually log into and interact with is actually is you know scoped within an individual role, relatively small, and it's really all of this machinery in the background that is this enabling technology, whether it sits behind Slack or it's sitting behind Salesforce or uh, you know sitting behind behind the tools of record for every department, it becomes so much more powerful as an enabling layer and as a data layer. And again, that's where I want to get back to a little bit of the inside baseball in the boardroom stuff uh, and want to put it through the lens of the people that are, are in this room. We've got a lot of people that lead partnership teams. We've got a lot of partner managers who are on partnership teams. You know, if, um, if they are in a meeting in a few weeks with their CEO and their uh, telling the story about why in the next year we should double the size of the partnerships team or we should make these really amazing investments. What are some of the things that the, the CEO might be looking to hear? What are the things the CEO heard in their last board meeting that they're really trying to focus and optimize the company on? You know, I've said this before, but it does all come back to ROI. Like this is where revenue is generated and accelerated. Um, and having the stats that track that is incredibly important. Um, you know, I've seen partnerships really accelerate sales um, through tangibly shorter sales cycles, higher conversion rates. You know, I think that's the first thing. But you know, when I think back on what does a successful partnership program look like, what does a best-in-class one look like, and you know, what is the sort of starting-off point that you can, you know, I, I think have a valid justification for wanting to expand your team. You know, there's like a press release. You know, you shake hands. We have a partnership, but like, why does that partnership exist? Because that is going to symbolize how much their AEs are going to work for you, right? And so when I see that sort of very rock solid justification um, in place, that to me is a sign of a lasting partnership. The second piece um, is really, and Bob, you actually mentioned this point, but something that get, got me really excited in the diligence process, um, that best partnerships organizations, they had really infiltrated sales teams. Like AEs were talking to the partnerships team nonstop. They had really discovered it in a way where I was hearing stories of like AEs getting promoted three times in one and a half years because they had discovered the value of partnerships data. And they had not just done this like, hey, every quarter, you got any leads for me, right? Like that kind of thing, <laughs> not going to work, right? You've got to have your data real time integrated. You've got to have a system for consistently mining partnerships data. Like it's not going to do it for you. You've got to actually do that, but like, what is your system in place, right? Is this something that is, and this goes back to the predictability point, is this something that you're continually going back to to build your, your pipeline, right? And like, how, how deeply integrated um, beyond just the partnerships team is that process? I think, um, and some of the tooling that, right? Like, that's what actually it gets back to the, you know, third and most important thing that I mentioned, which is measuring that ROI. Um, and so those are some of the, the attributes of best-in-class partnerships teams. When those are all in place, 
I see the justification kind of sell itself. Amazing. What a perfect note to, to end on. Uh, Sarah Wang, I want to thank you so much for being here, coming to Philly, coming to Supernode. Thanks again, everybody. Thanks, guys.